Well, good morning again, everyone. So good to have you here this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17 is where we'll be as we continue to walk through the book of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, there are some back there on the resource table for you, even some ESV little journals with the book of Matthew there um, for you. So please take advantage of those. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17, I am going to tell you one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. I was 10 years old. I was living in a small town in Northwest Ohio, Convoy, Ohio, and I was writing a report of some kind for my class. And what I needed from the store to be able to complete my report was back in the day, we would have these folders, and the folders would have these metal prongs, and we would put loose-leaf paper in them. And to keep those papers from tearing out of that folder, there were these little, um, like, plastic kind of holes that you can put on that to kind of strengthen the paper. And I needed some of those for my project to make sure to make it look extra special. In my small town, there was kind of a general store that was there, penny candy, everything from men's and women's clothing to fishing um, stuff, all those kinds of things like that. And so as a 10-year-old, I got on my bike and rode uptown, about a 30-second ride in my tiny small town. And as a 10-year-old, I walk into the store with a mouth full of retainer. And I walk into the store, and I look at the lady, and I said, Good morning. I need some support hose, please. She looked at me confused for a moment. I said, I'm sorry, I couldn't quite understand. What do you need again? Support hose. I need support hose for my project. She looked at me again, one more time, what do you need? Support hose. She takes me, walks me back to the women's underwear section, (laughs) and hands to me a package of support hose. Exactly what she thought I was asking for. And both of us stood there mortified. This older lady, to me, she was probably in her 90s, but I was 10, so she's probably 35. I don't know how that, how that works for that. Grandma-type figure to me, walking me to the women's underwear section, a 10-year-old boy, and handing me something, quite frankly, I didn't even know what it was, but I knew it wasn't what I was asking for at all. And so she looks at me, and I hold it in my hands, and I look at her, and I'm like, I need support hose. This is support hose. And finally, I kind of, somehow she understands a little bit. I pull out and I show her I need a little hose going, the paper to be able to go. And she finally gets me to the spot to get me the support holes that I was looking for all along. And both of us were unbelievably embarrassed in that moment that she was trying to sell women's underwear to a 10-year-old boy And I was leading her to sell me women's underwear to a 10-year-old boy. And in the point of this is to say that both of us had an idea of what I was asking for, but she clearly missed the point of what I was asking for. She clearly did not understand what it was that I was needing in that moment, what it is that I was truly asking for. What we see in our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 9 is the same kind of an idea that the point is clearly being missed, that what's being asked for is not the real question, is not the most important thing going on, and that, that the, the, those who were coming to Jesus and asking this question 
were missing the point. And Jesus, knowing their hearts and knowing what they were truly asking, kind of ignores their question a little bit and goes much, much deeper for them. Let's look in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. These are the words of recorded as Matthew is led along by the Holy Spirit. He says this, He says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your word to us, the revelation of Jesus to us, the revelation of your purposes and your ways and your characters. God, give us eyes to see this morning what it is that you would have for us. Convict our hearts, comfort us. Lord, and show us all of the wondrous truths that we can find in your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see in Matthew chapter 9 is this continual series. We've already learned over the last couple of weeks, this continual series of naysayers that are coming against Jesus. These questions, these accusations that are being made against Jesus, and Matthew showing us Jesus' response to those who are coming against Jesus. We learned a couple of weeks ago, they were challenging Jesus's authority. Remember the paralytic who came and Jesus looked at the paralytic and said, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes who were there in their hearts said, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to say that. You don't have the authority to do that. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, says, so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk to show that he can both heal the body and the heart. We saw last week, that the, scrub, the Pharisees came to Jesus and saw him hanging out with people that they didn't like. And Jesus' response to that is, is I came to, to heal. I came to heal those who are sick and not to come for the righteous. And so see these naysayers. And again, in today's passage, John's disciple, John the Baptist's disciples, come to Jesus with this question of Jesus' methods, of the way he's doing things, and specifically how his disciples are doing things. Their question is about fasting. John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and say, why is it that you, your disciples don't fast, your followers don't fast, but the Pharisees and us, why do we fast? I know this may be a shock to you as we get into this passage, but this passage really isn't about fasting. The question question that's being raised to them is not truly about fasting. It's not really about fasting. Their, Their question to Jesus was honestly at the heart of it was about rules and appearances. That we have rules that we follow. We have things that we are doing in our life to show that we're followers of God. But your disciples, saying to to Jesus' disciples, your disciples aren't doing that the same way that we are. They're not, they don't seem to be following the same rules that you do. They don't seem to be keeping up the same kinds of appearances that we are. The reality is that Jesus isn't coming for those things. He's not coming for fasting. And Jesus didn't come to check on whether or not we were keeping the rules, whether or not we were following up. He didn't come to check on those things. Jesus came to bring us to God. Jesus came to make us whole again. Jesus came to give us new life. 
And so John's disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes were missing the point. That it wasn't about appearances. It wasn't about outward things. It wasn't about keeping up with traditions and making sure that all of our ducks were in a row. It is about a vibrant, joyful relationship with Jesus. And that Jesus has come to offer us what no one else can offer us. What no other system can accomplish for us. What no law can accomplish for us. What no keeping up appearances can, can accomplish for us. Jesus came to give us newness of life. What I want to share with you this morning is three points from this passage. One, I'm going to share with us that Jesus brings spiritual nearness. That he brings a spiritual nearness. Two, that he brings a spiritual wholeness that he makes us whole again. And finally, I want to share with us that Jesus brings spiritual fullness to us. Everything that we're lacking is given to us in Christ. Let's look number one. Jesus brings spiritual nearness. I'm going to kind of just skip over verse 14, right? Because that that's the smoke screen, if you will. That's the thing that's been brought to Jesus to kind of distract him. That's not the real question at heart here. Jesus does answer it briefly, but he wants to expand on that. So we set the scene that John's disciples, John the Baptist, who was in prison, come to him and say, hey, what's the deal here? We're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting like we are? We open in verse 15. Jesus has answered to them, and he says this, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus, again, as he's prone to do, throws a curveball. He doesn't answer their question directly. He doesn't say, well, they're not fasting because of this. What he does here, and again, remember, this is John the Baptist's disciples. What he does is he goes back and he takes the very words of John the Baptist that he has already shared with his disciples about who Jesus is. He takes those words and uses them to explain why his disciples are not fasting. John chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. John the Baptist speaking says this, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who is the bride is the bridegroom, or who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in previous chapters, John the Baptist is explaining, my whole point of doing what I'm doing is to usher in the bridegroom, is to make room for the bridegroom, to proclaim that the bridegroom is coming. And now John the Baptist says in this passage, my joy is complete. Why is his joy complete? Because the bridegroom has come. The one he has been preparing for has come. The one he has been saying for a long time, prepare yourselves, get ready, repent. All of those things, the one he has been pointing the way for is now here. Jesus is here. The bridegroom is here. And so Jesus, using those same words, that same concept, goes back to the disciples of John and saying, listen, the reason my disciples are not fasting now is because the thing they have been waiting for is standing in their midst. It's here now. 
the hope they have been waiting for, the joy they have been waiting for, and all of the redemption they have been waiting for. Jesus is here. I am here. The bridegroom is here. And the reason they're not fasting is because the thing that they would be fasting for is standing in their midst. John's joy was complete because Jesus was there. You see, Jesus has come to be with us, not just to make sure that we're keeping the rules. Fasting was always meant as an act that reveals our longing for something more. Fasting was never about just keeping the rules, was never about just checking a box and saying, I did this religious act, I did this religious thing, and so God must love me more. God must accept me now because I've done this religious thing and I've checked that off of my list. Fasting was always to show in us, to produce in us a longing for something more to demonstrate and remind us that things aren't right just yet, that there's something missing in our lives. The fullness of something is missing in our lives. And the disciples weren't fasting in the way that the Pharisees or John's disciple wanted them to. Why? Because the thing they were waiting for was standing in their midst. It would be silly and foolish and, quite frankly, pointless of them in that moment to long for and to fast for Jesus when he's standing in their midst. The very point of fasting is to show I want more. I long for more. This world is not giving me enough. I need something more than this. And that Jesus is that more. My wife Katie and I were dating in our last year of dating. I was in Toledo finishing up college. She was at Kent State working with crew for those last bit of years. And that last year of our dating relationship, last few years, we dated long distance from each other. And it was difficult. It was before the days of cell phones. I know that's shocking that there was a day before cell phones, but there's a day before cell phones. And we relied completely on phones, that thing on the wall, hang in, plug it into the wall, spin some things, push some buttons, go to the Natural Museum of Art, and you'll figure out or history, and you'll see what that is. We relied solely on phone calls and emails. That's all that we had for us to talk back and forth from each other. And we would call each other regularly. We would email back and forth on a regular basis. We would be apart from each other for weeks at a time, and it was really, really difficult for us. And in our, if we could go back and read those emails now, man, would they be sappy, and would be awful, and would be sorrowful, and would be, oh, I miss you so much, and it's all those kinds of things. But the foolishness of of that would be if if when Katie came from Kent and visited me in Toledo, and she came into the house and I said, could you wait in the living room for a second? I need to go into the kitchen and send you an email. I need to go into the kitchen for a minute. You wait here. I've got this really good email. I've really thought through it. It's super romantic, and you're really going to love it, and it's going to demonstrate my love for you. Just give me some time while I go, and I go for this email to produce all of this. In the same way, the Pharisees and John's disciples were doing the same thing to Jesus, weren't they? They're saying to him, go wait. We have a thing we have to do. This is our rhythm. Our rhythm is we fast. On these days we fast. For this reason we fast. This is our rhythm. And Jesus, you're getting in the way of our rhythm. You're getting in the way of our religious act. You're getting in the way of the things that we're used to be doing. So please wait here while we do this thing. And Jesus is telling them of the foolishness of that. I am here with you. And this is why Jesus connects fasting with mourning in this passage. This is why you say we fast when we're mourning. We're mourning because right now we're away from Jesus. Why did we pick up fasting again when Jesus went back to his father? Because we want to be with Jesus. 
Because we long to be in our fullest sense of who we were meant to be. We were meant to be with Jesus. We were meant to be in relationship with, with God. We were meant for that, and we're not with Jesus in the fullest possible sense yet. Yes, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and that spiritual reality is very, very true, but there are still things, sin and rebellion and brokenness, that are keeping us from enjoying Jesus in the fullest sense that we were meant to enjoy Jesus. And so we fast now as a response of mourning and longing, and we want something more than that. And we're in that stage right now, are we not? Where we recognize that things aren't going the way they're supposed to be going at times. We look at, at our lives and we think that it's, it's, it's difficult. We want more. That we desire things that can only be meant in Jesus. We fast now because we're longing for a home that we're not quite there yet. It's proper for us to fast and to mourn now because we were made to be with God. We were made to enjoy him forever. And only Jesus can accomplish that. Only Jesus can bring us to God. Only Jesus can bring us home. Only Jesus can place us where we were always meant to be. Fasting in and of itself cannot do that. Keeping the rules cannot do that. Keeping up appearances cannot do that. Coming to service on a regular basis cannot do that. Dropping money in the offering box cannot do that. Attending life group every time cannot do that. Those things were meant not in and of themselves to rescue us and to save us. They were meant to point us to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all of those things. He is the thing we're longing for and hoping for. He is the thing we want more than anything else. And praise be to God that the reason Jesus came was to bring us home, was to bring us God, was to bring God to us that we might be in right relationship with him. If you go back to the beginning of Matthew from several months ago, when we opened the gospel of Matthew together and Jesus is coming on the scene into history, we see in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, one of the reasons Jesus came to earth says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why did Jesus come? Not to check up on us. Not to see if we're accomplishing the rules. Why did Jesus come? To bring us home. Jesus came to bring us with our Father. And so the question here that they're wanting to see in this passage that John's disciples are missing the point. It's not about us keeping rules and keeping up appearances and doing all of these religious acts. It is about a deep, meaningful, personal relationship with God that Jesus has come to accomplish for us. And so his disciples were missing the point. So my question to you, are you missing the point? What is your heart longing for? Why are you even here this morning? Why are you singing the songs that you're singing? Why are you have a Bible reading plan? Why have you set up a discipline of prayer? Why have you set up a discipline of fasting? Why are you inviting others to church? What is going on there? Are you doing those things because you feel like in doing them, I'm doing the right religious things? In doing them, I am I'm trying to, to, to honor God. I'm trying to get him to, to love me and accept me and others to love me and accept me. Or are you doing those as a means to know Jesus? 
as a means to be drawn in to a personal relationship with Jesus, deeper and deeper and deeper. And this is the whole of Scripture. This is why we exist. This is why we're breathing. This is why God created us in the very first place, is that we might know him and glorify him forever. This is why all this is here. And this is where all of this is heading. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why were we created? To know God. Where is all of this heading? To know God that God will dwell with his people. We will dwell with God. And then fasting will be no more. The Lord's Supper will be no more. Faith will be no more. Tears will be no more. Pain will be no more. Sickness and war will be no more. Why? Because God is with us in the fullest sense possible. But let me be abundantly clear. Jesus is the only way we accomplish that. He is the only way we are brought home to God, is through Jesus. That's why Jesus could look John's disciples in the eyes and say, my disciples are not fasting now because everything they hope for is standing in their midst. Everything they've been longing for is standing in the midst. The reason they're fasting is they want something more. They want to know God. And my disciples know God because they know me, because they see me. So Jesus has come. He has come to bring us close. He has come to bring us near. And fasting is a means by which we recognize that we are away from God and that Christ alone can draw us into him. Not only does Jesus come to bring us spiritual nearness, he also comes to bring us spiritual wholeness, to be whole again. Look with me in verse 16. Jesus continues this discussion, seems to change the topic. Jesus, again, kind of head scratcher, like we were talking about fasting, and now we're talking about clothes and wine. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. It's very clear what Jesus is talking about in this analogy, in this metaphor, that if you have a hole in your jeans, and you take a very new piece of jean material— and try to patch over that hole in the gene material, it will work for a very short amount of time. Because that new gene material will need to stretch, will need to pull. And what Jesus is saying here, what happens then is that both things will be ruined because of that. It will tear even a larger hole in your genes than when you first put the patch on. That the old and the new don't mix. We can't put those things together and jam the new in to the old. You see, this isn't how it's going to work. The patch won't hold. The old garment will tear. So what's Jesus referring to here? What's he talking about when he's talking about unshrunk clothes and, and, and new garments and all of those things? What I think that he's talking about here is that we can't try to combine our righteousness or what we think our righteousness is with Jesus's righteousness. We can't look at our lives and say, my life is this way. I see a few holes in my life. And if I just add Jesus into those holes, if 
If I just try to use Jesus as a patch to those areas that I think I'm missing, then I will be made whole and everything will be right again. Jesus is referring to here specifically that the ways that the Pharisees and the scribes have taken the Old Testament law, taken the Mosaic law, taken the prophets and twisted them and perverted them and added things to them and saying, listen, we can't take the new, which is Jesus, this new way of living, this new way of thinking, and just add it in to the old. The old has to be set aside. The new is coming to consume all of that. And what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying here, is that the Old Testament is bad, and that the law is bad, and we need to destroy the old law, destroy the Old Testament, so that the new Jesus could come. He's not saying that. We read earlier on in Matthew, that did not come to what? To abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill the law. So Jesus is not saying destroy the old, it's bad. What he's saying, these two can't mix. That that was never intended to hold you was never intended to save you. That's never intended for this new stuff to be added into all of those things. It's not that it was the Old Testament was useless or wrong, but that the, the superficial laws that the Pharisees made up, those things are. The added expectations to the law, those things need to be thrown away. The misinterpretations, the empty traditions, those things need to be set aside because Jesus and those things will not mix. They cannot work together. That the Old Testament law, that the things of the old were meant to point us towards something fuller and better and more complete than what they ever could. And that in Jesus, the fullness of all of that is seen. A few weeks ago, my son Keith and I were driving home from the University of Toledo. It was at night. It was raining. We were in um, Toledo and coming through. And as we were driving down Westwood Avenue, coming towards home— I saw a split second before I hit it, a gigantic pothole. Toledo, I love you and your streets. I love you. Instantaneous pop, pop in both of my tires on that side. Pull over to the side of the road, look at my tires on the, on the passenger side. Both tires are flat. Both of them are flat. So I get in my car and I, and I go and kind of think through what can we do? Can I put the spare on? Do I need to fill these up? Get the car eventually to someone who can look at it. My front tire is destroyed. I need a complete new tire. The back tire, not only is the tire destroyed, but my rim is also a wreck. And so I think to myself in that moment, I don't know a lot about cars. I don't know a lot about things. Just give me a new tire. Like it's my old, terrible car. Give me a used tire. Throw them back on there and get me on the road. And they made it very clear to me, we can do that. But in about seven seconds down the road, your tire is going to explode again. Because unless we take care of this rim— Unless we replace all of it, it's going to break again. I couldn't put a new tire, no matter how new or shiny that tire was, I couldn't put it on that old rim. It couldn't hold it any longer. It wasn't sustained for that. It wasn't made for that any longer. It had been warped. It had been changed. And so I needed a whole new process. And Jesus is saying here, we can't take new things and put them on old things. They won't hold. We can't patchwork our lives with Jesus. We can't keep our old lives and our old way of doing things and our old thinking and just add Jesus into the spots that we think we need something else. It won't work. What do we need? New lives, new hearts, new garments. We need a whole new outfit. We don't just need patches. We need a whole new outfit. My righteousness and Jesus' righteousness do not mix together. 
One, because I have none apart from Jesus. I have none on my own. The righteousness I think I have doesn't actually exist. What I need is new garments. And Jesus is coming to give us those new clothes, to give us newness of life. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns adorns herself with, with her jewels. This is what we need. We need newness. We need to set aside our old life. We need to set aside our old expectations, set aside our own traditions, our old whatever it is, for the newness that only Jesus can offer us. Some of us are living very frustrated, anxiety-filled lives because we're trying to mix our old life with our new life. We're trying to continually go back to our old life and say, but I like those old jeans. They were very comfortable. I could wear them for weeks on end without washing them, and nobody would ever know those kinds of things, right? Some of you are sitting in a pair of jeans like those right now. Um, You like them. They're comfortable. They fit exactly the way. I like those things. I'm used to that. And so we look back and we try to go back and we try to mix the two things and we end up being frustrated. We end up being angry. We end up being a loss and sad and what's going on. Why isn't this working? It isn't working because Jesus doesn't mix with those old things. Jesus wants to come and to give you newness of life. Wants to make you whole, not just patch you up. He wants to make you whole. Not just fill in some pieces in your life. He wants to resurrect you from the dead and give you a whole new life, a whole new heart to make you whole. The thing that you were missing all along, not just to plug in so we have little pieces of Jesus over us. He wants to wash completely over us and give us a new outfit, shining and new. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 says, For many of you as baptized into Christ have put on or have clothed yourself with Christ. What do we need more than anything else? Newness, wholeness. What can't we provide on our own, no matter how hard we try? Newness and wholeness. We can't accomplish it on our own. We can't try to just plug in the holes that are there. We need to get rid of our old life, put on our new life, the garments that Christ has come for us. And Jesus has come to bring us spiritual wholeness, not just to patch up our lives, but to make us whole again. Thirdly, Jesus brings us spiritual fullness. Spiritual fullness. We look again, he gives this example of this patchwork on old garments and how it won't connect. And he gives yet another example of why the old and the new don't mix together. Verse 17, neither is the new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. What Jesus is saying here is this. Old wineskins are used to old wine. But if I try to put this new in, if I try to come along with the newness of this covenant, the newness of this promise, the newness of this wholeness and fullness, and I try to put that into, old, into these wineskins, that they're eventually going to break. That they can't contain the newness of the wine. They can't contain what is wants to be done in your life, what wants to be done for the world. These old wineskins, this old way of doing things that was never meant to satisfy, cannot contain the newness that Jesus brings to us. 
Jesus is using this metaphor to say that we can't hold on to all that God desires to give us. What he's trying to explain in this passage of scripture is that there's something humongous. There's something gigantic. There's something overwhelming that I want to give to you that your old traditions, your old way of thinking, your old whatever it is cannot contain the newness and the fullness and the bigness of what I want to give to you. I want to give you infinitely more than you ever thought possible. I want to give you infinitely more than you had ever hoped for or imagined or dreamed for. I want to give you myself, and I cannot be contained with any old wineskins. I cannot be contained by those things. Again, the Old Testament, it's good. The law is good. It was meant for us, but it was never meant to be enough. It was never meant to save us. It was never meant to redeem us. It was never meant to bring us to, to, to God. It was never meant to change us. It was only meant to inform us or to point us in the direction to go. Jesus didn't come to destroy the old, but to fulfill it to overflowing. To say what the Old Testament was trying to give you was pointing to me, and it's way bigger than anything I ever had for you. I think of it this way. One commentator this week talked about the idea of an acorn. And we think about an acorn, and you think about looking at this thing in the fall of my house, and every, I think, third or fourth year when they fall, you cannot sit in our front yard for about a month unless you want to get drilled in the head by about a hundred acorns that are falling down on a regular basis. Now, the thing about an acorn is that's not the fullness of that thing, is it? It's not, that's not the end of that thing. That thing, that acorn, points to something bigger and better and greater than itself. What does an acorn point us to? The oak tree. That acorn is meant to point us there's something bigger about to happen. There's something better about to happen. The acorn is not an end and of itself. It is pointing to something bigger. And the same thing with the Old Testament law. It is good and it is right and it is necessary, but it's not the fullest thing it could be. It's not what it's intended to be fully. It is meant to point us to the, to the oak tree. What Christ comes to do is to give us spiritual fullness. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For us to enter into the fullness, the newness of what Jesus has for us, the old needs to pass away. We need to say, I'm going to let go of the old. I'm going to let go of my expectations. I'm going to let go of those things that I was holding on to and give to Jesus so that he may fill me full. Psalm 31, verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind, what the psalmist, what David is telling us in Psalm 31 is the bigness of the goodness of God. And our old traditions, our own ways, the old way of thinking cannot contain the fullness of the goodness of God. That our world, our traditions, our our expectations, our things that we do in and of ourselves cannot contain the fullness of Jesus. It says here that God has stored up goodness for his people. That God is working for his people. That goodness towards his people. The fullness of all that God has for us. The reason you were made and created is to be found in Jesus. And too often we're trying to, to jam that goodness or to jam our expectations or our religious acts or whatever it is into these broken cisterns that were never meant to hold all of that. 
We're never able to hold all of that, that is continually broken, that God desires to give us the fullness in Jesus, that the old and the new cannot meet because Jesus has something infinitely better for us than what the world has to offer than what we can conjure up in our brains, what we can think of on our own. Jesus wants to come and give us infinitely more than that. And this is why Jesus has come. This is why he came into the earth. This is the new thing that he's been doing all along. As we see over and over again, people coming against him and questioning him and and, and criticizing him again and again. And Jesus saying out of love and of kindness, I have come to give you infinitely more than you have settled for. Come to make you infinitely fuller than what you have settled for. You have settled for the rules and the regulations. You have settled for keeping up appearances. You have settled for outward actions and outward appearances. You have settled for just trying to keep your act together as best as you possibly can. And that falls infinitely short of what Jesus wants to give to us, of who Jesus is for us. That all of that is pointing to our need for Jesus that only Christ can fulfill. This passage isn't really about fasting. This passage is about the fullness of God. This passage is about don't miss the point of why Jesus has come. This passage is about pointing us to something bigger and fuller and wholer and closer than anything this world has to offer. Jesus is continually um, blowing people's expectations apart to show them something bigger and stronger. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. The Apostle Paul, at the end of chapter 3, um, his words cannot contain the big idea he is trying to convey to his readers. They can't begin to convey convey all that God has for his people, but he tries desperately. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Why has Jesus come? He's not come to check up on you. He's not come to look over your shoulder and look at your list of things you've done and not done. He's not come to look at the outward of your life and make sure everything on the outside looks the way that it's supposed to do. Why has Jesus come? To fill us with all the fullness of God. And if that doesn't overwhelm you, nothing will. Christ has come to fill you with all the fullness of God. The Old Testament law, as good as it is, the prophets, as good as they were, and as right as they were, cannot fill you with the fullness of God. You coming to service, you giving into the offering, you helping others, cannot in and of themselves fill you to the fullness of God. It won't work. Your system will eventually break. 
Your wineskins will eventually explode. You cannot contain it. Who can contain the fullness of God but Christ alone? And who is living in us? Christ is living in us, bringing the fullness of God to us. That's impossible. It should blow your mind that the fullness of God can dwell in us. Not that we are God, but the fullness of God can dwell in us because Christ dwells in us. So if you're questioning at the end of the day, am I fasting right or wrong? Am I praying right or wrong? Is my attendance enough? Am I giving enough? Am I serving enough? Am I doing the right things? Am I saying the right words? Then you're missing the point. The point of it all, the point of my very existence is, am I being filled to the fullness of who God is? Am I being made whole again? Am I being brought near to God? And if your answer, if your answer to that question is, well, I think fasting's doing that, and my attendance is doing that, all those kinds of things, you're missing the point. The only one that brings me to God, the only thing that gives me wholeness, the only thing that gives me the fullness of the fullness of God is Christ and Christ alone. And this is who we serve. And this is the Jesus that has come on the scene. This is the Jesus that looks at John's disciples, kind of as that old lady looked at me and said, what are you asking? What, what kind of ridiculous question are you asking about why my disciples are not fasting? They are with the one they have been longing for their entire lives. Why would they fast? Why would they long for the thing that is in their presence? To show us once and for all the thing we need most in the world is Jesus. It is Christ. And he satisfies every bit of our longing. See in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, we're going to transition into time of taking the Lord's Supper. If our music team wants to come, if those who are helping with Lord's Supper want to get ready for that. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So in other words, fasting is the shadow. The substance is Jesus. The Lord's Supper is the shadow. The substance is Jesus. Our gathering as this space is the shadow. The substance is Jesus. That there are things that we do that are, are merely the shadow. They're not the fullness of what we want. Jesus is the shadow. Or Jesus is the substance. And so we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We celebrate communion this morning. Not because in and of itself we draw close to God. Not because in and of itself it makes us right with God. We celebrate the Lord's Supper to remind us that this is the shadow. That Christ is the substance. We eat the bread to remember that the bread is a shadow of the substance of the body of Christ. Who was broken for us. Who died for us. Who is the bread of life. That if we eat of him, we will never go hungry again. We drink the juice as a reminder to us that Christ is the substance. It is his blood that was shed for us. It is his blood who in a new covenant brought us to God. Christ is the substance. 
And so as you take this Lord's Supper, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, remember what it's for. God is not clapping because you took the Lord's Supper. God is not looking at your chart and putting the X. They took the Lord's Supper in February. Good job. I'll see you in three or four weeks and we'll do it again in March and I'll check that box for you. What God is doing when we take the Lord's Supper is he is opening himself to you to say, come, enjoy, remember all that I have done for you in Christ. Remember how my son lived for you and died for you to bring you to myself. The point of this is the presence and the wholeness and the fullness of God. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, take it, enjoy it, worship God through it. Remember all that he did for you. Um, Give praise and honor to God for all that he has accomplished for you. And remember that this bread and this juice is a shadow pointing to the substance of Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus just yet this morning, please come to the Lord. Come to Jesus. Give yourself to him. He stands and he waits and he longs for you. He wants to draw you close. The rest of the world, the rest of your traditions push you away when you're not right. When you don't have things together, they they send you away and they look away and they, they don't want to be around you. But God in Christ draws you close in your brokenness. He doesn't try to patch you up. He gives you a whole new life. He doesn't try to fill in some empty spaces in your life. He gives you fullness to overflowing. If you're not a follower of Christ this morning, come to Christ. Not so you can take the Lord's Supper, but so you can experience the nearness and the wholeness and the fullness that God has for you in Christ. If you have children that are followers of Jesus, parents, Leave it up to your judgment, however you want to see fit for them to take that. This is a time um, for you to enjoy that. If you have children that that aren't followers of Jesus, parents, tell them what you're doing. Explain to them why you're eating this, why you're drinking this, what all of this means. So that we can go before the Lord in fullness, in wholeness, in nearness with him. As the worship team comes, we'll hand out the elements.